Welcome to Full Rigor, Florida True Crime Podcast. I'm Karen Curtis. Jennifer's out investigating other crimes. And I'm joined by my little podcast producer and cub reporter, bear cub reporter, Lexi Bear. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. This is kind of a sad and almost reminiscent of the Christy Luna story. Yeah, it's just another WTF case. Yeah, what happened? Where is she? We're talking about Rachel Hurley. She went missing. The sleepy little town of Jupiter, which was made famous, internationally famous on The Bachelorette. Yes. When uh, Tyler Cameron took The Bachelorette, Hannah Brown, out on a boat in front of the Jupiter Lighthouse, right by Carlin Park. That's where it was? Yes. I did not make that connection. Yes. So Jupiter Inlet, and she was out, Rachel Hurley was out in a boat in 1990. It was St. Patrick's Day. Yes. And it was 2.45, and she had to meet her mom back at Carlin Park. There's Du Bois Park by the inlet, and then there's a little trail, and you go to Carlin Park from there. So they let her out of the Boston Whaler on the shore, and she ran through the woods, through a trail, and then her mom shows up at 3 o'clock, and she's not there. Yeah, it turns out that's the last time they saw her alive. Exactly. And so Jupiter, at that time, in 1990 had maybe 28,000 people that lived there, very sleepy, oceanside town. And now there's about 64,000 people. We still don't know, 30 years later, who took Rachel Hurley. And we'll tell you eventually what happened to her. But this case is definitely chilling. It definitely put the town of Jupiter on edge. And it's one of Florida's most notorious unsolved rape and murder cases, unfortunately. She was 14 years old, law enforcement here in Palm Beach County. They take this case particularly to heart. Well, some of them are more personal. Yeah, this is a 14-year-old girl, and I take that personally. That is PBSO Detective William Springer. He actually has been trying to solve this case. First, he set up a cold case squad in 2004. Then he came back from retirement in 2013 to investigate this case. He just, he just can't give it up. There's always that one with police that really sticks with you. They can't go to sleep at night because that's the last thing on their mind is Rachel Hurley. So as I said, this was St. Patrick's Day, 1990. Three girls, two boys, were boating. 14-year-old Jupiter Middle School student. She was full of life, Rachel Hurley. She uh, had left, as I said, the Jupiter Inlet to meet her mom at Carlin Park. That's like less than a mile away. So like a 15, 20-minute walk or yeah, run? Yeah, she was running. Yeah, in her case. Because she didn't want to be late and worry her mom. That's what's so sad about it, that she was trying so hard to be there, and then it ended, she'll never be there again. No, and as I said, this case really put Jupiter on edge. Well, I think it affected Jupiter, and I think it still does, because you, anybody you talk to in Jupiter that I come across, everybody knows Rachel Hurley. It's one case that'll never go away. It'll never go away. So Rachel was the coolest girl in school. I heard that too. Yes. She had the best hair. She played softball. Yep, yep. She was part of the Jupiter Tequesta Athletic Association. And they have a memorial with her name on it there at the ballpark. And she had a quick wit and she had a lot of charm. And I guess she attracted older boys which is, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But she was loved by all friends and family. She was definitely the youngest and the most loved, of course. Her father was a school teacher. He just passed away, like in 2019. Really? So he went to heaven not knowing. Never knowing. That's kind of like the John Bonet Ramsey case where 
her mom passed away. It was yeah, she died with what breast cancer. Yeah, she died and, in two thousand four. But and we don't know who did it. It's so weird. We still don't. So the father coached his grandson's lacrosse team, and Detective Springer is just sorry he couldn't solve Rachel's case, his daughter's murder, before he passed away. I mean, he was a great guy. He was a coach. Uh, he passed away coaching his grandson's lacrosse team. He was just a great all-around guy. And I'm just sorry that I couldn't solve his daughter's murder before he died. So at 2.45, uh, her mom pulled into Carlin Park and there was no sign of Rachel. So she thought she made a mistake and that Rachel wanted to be picked up at the Jupiter Inlet. She drove home and Rachel wasn't there. And that's when she knew in her gut that there was something wrong. Yeah, around about 4 o'clock, that's when she went to police. She called police. She called PBSO. She said, you know, this is a major problem. My daughter would not do this. So there was a huge search for five hours by land, sea, and air. Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office were notified at 5 p.m., two hours after going missing. Those who remember that day recall chaos, panic, and anguish. There was a huge search, which included Rachel's mother, Andrea Hurley, Rachel's friends, parents, neighbors, and more than 100 Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office deputies. Two boats, a helicopter, eight mounted deputies, three canine units, and four vehicles. That's audio from our friends at PBSO who are still trying to solve this crime. There's a Facebook page. There's also a number to call. We'll give that to you at the end. There's a $15,000 reward if you can help them find who did this. But at about 8.15 that night, PBSO found Rachel's body partially clothed, lying face up in a wooded area between Dubois Park and Carlin Park. Her nude body faced up. Her clothes were nearby. The preliminary autopsy results indicated that Rachel's cause of death was asphyxiation. So at that time in 1990, I was a main anchor at Channel 25, the ABC affiliate here. So we were covering this story. We had our picnic for the station at Carlin Park that year. I went parasailing right off the beach. Have you ever done that? It's like sitting in the lap of God. I've been parasailing, but in the Bahamas, but that's just crazy the same year. I know. So it's just unnerving that this would happen. You know what I mean? It's such a sleepy community, beautiful, no crime, and that this happened, that this girl... In broad daylight. Broad daylight. I mean, and the window of opportunity was 2.45 to 3 o'clock. 15 minutes. Yeah, it was just shocking. So the whole town of Jupiter was just incredulous. They couldn't believe it. And the first tip in the case came from a young man who was also in the park that day. The first tip came from a high school student who claimed to be in the park on the same day body was found. The man was described as a man in his mid-30s with a tan complexion, dark blonde hair, and a beard, standing six feet tall and about 160 pounds. So apparently this area, this wooded area, was a known hangout for homeless people. I didn't know that uh, at the time, you know. But uh, 50 homeless people were interviewed and investigated, but the homeless lead dried up. You had a profile. They came up with a profile. What yeah, was it? so the FBI got involved, and this is more so down the line when they're around for like 15, 20 years compared to the 70s when they just started doing Quantico and profiling. And and they said that the psychological profile of the killer would be a young white male from the upper class family, charismatic, who was probably out of work and not particularly grounded. And it just so happened that their first suspect was 17 years old and met all of those things. I remember distinctly this suspect's name, and it is? 
Billy Fagan. Yes, Billy Fagan. He was like the poster child for this case. Everybody thought he did it. I mean, he was adopted into an upper-class family, very charming, spent money on his friends. The shoe fit. And the funeral home stayed open after hours to accommodate 3,000 friends and relatives who came to say goodbye, but one of them was particularly emotional, Billy Fagan, at the funeral. It was, like, weird. So that kind of tipped police off. But you said he had an alibi that was ironclad. Yeah, apparently he had a very strong alibi. They never released what it was to the public, but it eliminated him as a suspect. And plus, later on, his DNA didn't match. They did have DNA. Later on. By then, see, 1987 was the first case in Tampa that we've talked about where DNA was used to convict a rapist. But by 1990, it really wasn't used a lot. And it's never shown up in the CODIS system a match for this DNA. They've tested about 127 men, I think, and none of them were a hit. But Billy Fagan was arrested actually two months later in May on other charges related to 13 girls and one boy. But none of them related to Rachel. Ultimately, he had, what, 31 charges? Most involved accusations of Billy fondling girls he knew? They were dropped. Yeah, they were dropped. They were dropped in September of that year. So all the felonies were dropped. So it's kind of weird. Uh, One woman said that she remembered that he was overly dramatic at the funeral and that he was more emotional than the rest of the people crying hysterically and shaking all over kind of a visceral response to you know what I mean it's so strange we we thought for sure <laughs> behind the scenes and in the newsroom this is the guy you know so for the next two months detectives moved in and out of Jupiter Middle School talking to kids who knew Rachel and somewhere along the line Billy turned up a helpful clue hunter made him a murder suspect so the case transformed according to the FBI uh by studying the evidence, the park and the surroundings, and the Bureau released a psychological profile, as you said, the kind of person that would commit the crime. And he basically fit it. Young white male, upper middle class, charismatic, probably out of work, not particularly well-grounded, and that was Billy. At 17, at the time, he was a sophomore, so he was older. At nearby Palm Beach Gardens High School, he liked cruising the intercoastal in a small fishing boat, meeting friends at the beach, sometimes driving his dad's Mercedes or his more modest Chevy. And he was sociable. He was well-liked around other kids. I mean, his friends did tell police that he had a dark side. That's right. That he would get really angry when he was drunk and even resort to violence. And in 2005, he was actually charged and sentenced to prison for sexual battery. Yeah, so they would have his DNA. They would do a mouth swab in that case. So it's not a match. Very strange. And you said there was a T-shirt found near the scene with someone's blood on it, but that guy turned out to not be a suspect too, right? Yeah, it was about on the 15th anniversary. That's when they investigated another suspect. So for 15 years, I believe, it just stayed cold. And on this 15th anniversary, police spoke of an owner of a bloody shirt And they tested the blood, and his blood matched the shirt, but they couldn't link any other evidence to him and the crime. So they let him go. So he just matched blood on a shirt that was found near her body. Near the scene, in a dumpster. Oh, gosh. And it's a park. Yeah, that's, yeah. So it's hard to get that. So, uh, as I said, in 2004, Detective Springer put together a cold case squad, but more than a quarter century later, Hurley's killer still hasn't been found. And this infuriates Detective Springer, he came out of retirement, as they said, in 2013 to work this homicide. It really pisses me off that 
somebody murdered Rachel, is out there enjoying life, just went on with their life like, like nothing. I mean, this piece of needs to go to jail. And I know that somebody out there has firsthand knowledge that could put us on the right track to put this person in jail. And they need to step up. He just needs a name. And I understand the guy that matched the blood on the t-shirt actually gave a jailhouse confession, right? Yeah, Douglas J. Gross, he was an interesting guy. I mean, he was saying that he did it with an accomplice and then they identified the accomplice and he actually submitted to a full DNA test, everything like that, and didn't match anything. So they were just thinking that he was just trying to get time out of jail. And then in 2003, a woman named Tammy Rowell told police that a man named Paul Simon, obviously not the singer, (laughs) came forward. She said that he raped her and that she would have been suffocated if her friend had not come along. So then they investigated him thinking it was 1990. Same M.O. In 1990, he was 17. It was the same MO, and it was a few years later. Of course, they did DNA, and that didn't pan out, so they've been back at square one with the whole thing. Which really frustrates Detective Springer. How would you feel if your daughter didn't come home, and then she was found viciously murdered, and you knew something about it, or you knew somebody knew something about it, and that person didn't have the fortitude to man up and and come out and help you. I mean, I can't picture going to bed at night knowing that my daughter or my son was murdered and nobody wants to help. I mean, that's a terrible loss. It's really disconcerting. So you can call Detective Springer if you have any information at 561-688-4013. There is a $15,000 reward, so you'll get some money in your pocket if you can help lead to an arrest and conviction. Tipsters can remain anonymous. You can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-458-TIPS. And they have a Facebook page devoted to the case, Justice for Rachel Hurley. It was created by Sherry Duff, another childhood friend of Hurley's. So all of that's available to you. And any information that's left with him or Crime Stoppers or on Facebook will be thoroughly investigated. Just like with the Christy Luna case. Exactly. Remember, they went and they dug around and they, someone said the bones were right by the house, and alas, they weren't. But still, they gave it. It was credible, and they took a shot. We're still looking for an update in that, too. There is no statute of limitations on murder, my friend. You know, having been in news at the time that this happened, and can you imagine finding her body, being the one that found the body in the woods? I'm sure the mom was thinking, oh, she's just gone with friends, or she, you know what I mean? But she knew in her gut. And that as a mom with a daughter... I would have just been devastated by this. And to not know who did it would be gut-wrenching. I mean, she had an older, technically has an older sister about three years apart, and me and my sister are two and a half years apart. I'm older. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. What happened to her in that woods? Who did it? It was such a short amount of time. There's been so much testing with DNA. 127 men. Was it an isolated incident? Was the guy not in the system has he just done it once he must have because he's not in the system or maybe he just got away with it so many times if there's dna at a scene it's going to be put into codis so it would get a hit it's so strange so if you have any information please help out let's get some justice for rachel but lexi before we say goodbye on this episode i wanted to finish up 
with a little Florida conundrum. It's a story about not a who done it, but a where is she? Oh yeah. <laughs> it's about a woman who was wanted by the US Marshals for a failure to appear. <laughs> okay, so she's disappeared somewhere. Where is she? This is the big question. She's 39-year-old Crystal Lee Anderson, and she was originally arrested. She was holding people hostage at a Burger King with a BB gun. What? They got her order wrong? She was the hamburglar. No. <laughs> the hamburglar. Have it your way. <laughs> so they didn't realize, Place, I guess they didn't realize it was just a BB gun. But anyway, that thing ended badly for her because she was shot by police, and she ended up losing both legs. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but oh my. Talk about ground beef. <laughs> <laughs> she got hamburgled. <laughs> so, poor thing. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, so this happened in 2015. So then she failed to appear in court on the charges, including false imprisonment, that was related to the 2015 incident when she allegedly held people hostage at the Burger King. This is in Polk County, and it ended with the police shooting her, and she lost her legs. So I'm, I'm not sure if she had, like, prosthetics fitted and she could walk or she's, like, wheelchair-bound or what's going on, but she's they can't find her. So police, she's now four feet tall, by the way. They think she just fled? <laughs> on foot? <laughs> or by chair? I don't know. So anyway, finally... Authorities received a tip that Anderson was with 48-year-old John Robert Carr Jr. of Winter Haven. Oh, no. Yeah. So they go to his house, and they said, hey, we're looking for Crystal, and we think she's with you. We've got information that she's with you. Can we look around? So they're poking around there like you do in Polk County, and they can't find her. Where so did she go? Where would you hide a woman that's four feet tall with no legs? A drawer? <laughs> a cupboard? <laughs> he probably thought about putting her in a potted plant, but he knew the cops would get to the root of the problem. <laughs> what about in the dryer? <laughs> Perfect. He put her on the fluff cycle. The mailbox? <laughs> I wonder if he put the flag up to let the mailman know there's an outgoing package. <laughs> a special delivery? <laughs> yeah. We're so bad. Very special. So, of course, Carr's denying that Anderson is there, but a police officer had spotted Carr, placing, again, the now four-foot-tall woman in a plastic container. Like a rubber tote. She doesn't need to tuck and roll, right? I mean, she doesn't need to tuck and roll. <laughs> Did he poke holes in the top so she could breathe? Oh, my God. So, they finally found the container. They opened it up. There she was inside, hiding among the Christmas decorations. This time, she surrendered without incident because she didn't want to lose any more limbs, I'm sure. Well, what was she going to do? <laughs> Car, yeah, was she, she they couldn't... They got her, like, plopped. I know, she couldn't flee the scene. So Car now is charged with resisting arrest. So the moral of the story is she lost her legs, and now she's lost her freedom. Only in Florida. Tell everybody about our, our Instagram page. Oh, yeah, guys, before we go, make sure you follow us at Full Rigor Podcast on Instagram. Like, so thank you, Lexi, for helping me out. And my daughter reminds me that you need to subscribe to our Full Rigor podcast. What do you recommend people do? You're a social media type. Um, go on your iPhone or Android. Go to podcasts and subscribe. Okay. And then also give us a five-star rating. We'd appreciate it. Thank you, Lexi. Thanks for having me, Karen. That's Full Rigor. 
the Wendy's $3 breakfast deal is here. Get a bacon or sausage egg and Swiss croissant plus a small seasoned potatoes. That's a better breakfast for just three bucks in three easy steps. One, wake up. <sighs> Two, get out of bed. And three, head to Wendy's for your $3 breakfast deal. Choose wisely. Choose Wendy's $3 breakfast deal. Limited time only. Participating U.S. Wendy's during breakfast hours. Select a request $3 breakfast deal in order to obtain discount. Not valid for all card or combos orders. Price and participation may vary in Alaska and Hawaii. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.